chapter 3, Faith, about faith. Before we hop into faith, I am going to give you the briefest of introductions to Jesus Christ. Followers of Jesus Christ are often called Christians, and Christians believe in one God who created the entire universe and everything in it. We believe Jesus Christ was God's Son who walked the earth in 4 BC and was killed by the Roman Empire, which was under pressure to do so by Jewish leaders. Jesus died to forgive the sins or wrongdoing of everyone who chose and continues to choose to follow him and his teachings, which are recorded in the Bible. Now, faith can be defined in an infinite number of ways, but this is how I define it. Faith is choosing to believe in what I cannot and never will fully understand. So yes, it takes faith to believe all the stories and all the lessons in the Bible, and some of them are pretty wild. But when it comes to our relationship with God and our belief in Jesus, we have to start by placing our faith in the teachings of the Bible. Faith isn't rooted in science, archaeology, or history. Faith is a relational decision. When I chose to trust you, believe the best of you, and allow you to deeply influence my life, it could be said, I am placing my faith in you. This is similar to what it is like to place our faith in Jesus. I am trusting that Jesus is who he says he is, that he can do what he says he can do, that he came from where he said he came, and that he loves us to the depth he says he does. A relationship with God is rooted in faith in his son, Jesus. The Bible says it this way, Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent, John 6.29. In a simpler context, a great example of faith is the institution of marriage. When we choose to commit our lives to another person, we're doing so without having any idea of where our paths in life are going to take us. But we place our faith in the other person's character, commitment, and love for us, and our love in return for them. Even though we cannot know the future in marriage, we place faith in the person we choose to face the future with. That assumption is faith. The question of faith is not about proving the details. It's about placing my trust in a person. The same thing is true when we place our faith in Jesus. We are choosing to trust that He is who He says He is the Son of God and that He loves us. Maybe your instinct is to push back a little bit and you're thinking, well, all this information is coming from the Bible. So what you really are saying is you want me to rely on faith to believe the Bible is true. That's right. In order to interact with God the way he prescribes in the Bible, we have to accept by faith that the Bible contains the actual words of God. Christians believe the Bible was written by human beings who shared the words that God directed them to write down and pass on. This is called inspiration. One of the greatest writers in the Bible was the Apostle Paul. Paul was a hyper-educated guy with the ancient equivalent of a PhD. He wrote, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16 essay. In the Greek language, the language from which we translated the New Testament of the Bible into English, breathed out by God means inspired by God. According to Paul, the Bible comes from God. Another person who wrote a lot of the Bible was the Apostle Peter. He was more of a blue-collar, earthy guy, a fisherman who owned his own fishing vessels. About the Bible, Peter wrote, No prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit to Peter 1 and 21. Side note, I won't drown you in details, but the basic understanding of the Holy Spirit is that He is part of God. The Holy Spirit is how we understand God. 
So according to Peter, the Bible comes from God. So we've already learned about the Bible in chapter 1, but what's important at this juncture is how we interact with it. Simply put, Christians believe the Bible is not from humans, though it was written by humans. God spoke to the writers and in essence said, I want you to write down and record the truth about me and the story of humanity, but I want you to do it through the human experience, through human eyes, so that when human beings read it, they can understand my heart and mind. That's why, as Christians, we believe the Holy Spirit, God himself, directed what the writers wrote and therefore wrote the very words of God. Christians interact with the Bible, we interact with it as if it is coming directly from God. You have faith already. You might say, Jeff, that's a huge step of faith. I understand the history of the Bible and all that, but now you expect me to believe that God supernaturally wrote a book? I hear what you are saying, and I know how it sounds, so let's talk about it. I understand that some people might be skeptical about the idea of the Bible having been inspired and breathed out by God. Some would even be critical and say only old-fashioned, simple people would believe the Bible. But I would push back on that way of thinking a little bit. Remember, faith is believing in what you cannot see and what you cannot fully understand. Think about the fact that faith is an unavoidable part of life. We rely on it every day. When we sit down on a chair, by faith, we expect it to hold our weight. When we get into an elevator, by faith, we expect it to go to the floor that matches the number on the button we pushed. When we board an airplane, by faith, we trust that pilot to transport us safely. We don't know him or her personally. We may not understand the machine or how it operates. We just figure somebody's got it handled. So let's switch the paradigm to relationships. When we choose to love and devote ourselves to someone, we put our faith in them and the future we will have together. Having faith is not an extra step that we take in life. We live by it every day. Some people say they don't believe there's a God and that those who have such a belief is foolish. I would challenge that idea because the choice to believe there isn't a God is also a decision of faith. It takes an atheist just as much faith to disbelieve God as it takes a Christian to believe God. An atheist does not have any more evidence that God doesn't exist than I have that God does exist. Our respective evidence or lack thereof does not make either of us any more or less right than the other. Maybe you're a humanist who believes in the importance of human goodness and rational problem solving instead of divine or supernatural solutions. Or maybe you believe in a little bit of everything. You have the freedom to believe what you want, but the bottom line is that we all place our faith in a belief system. The question isn't whether I exercise faith in my life. The question is, what am I placing my faith in and is that belief system trustworthy? To answer that, I would weigh the possible risks and rewards of choosing faith. Let's examine them together. And what do you place your faith? When I married Heidi 30 years ago, I asked myself, is this relationship trustworthy? If I place my faith in this relationship, is the potential outcome worth the risk of my faith? I decided it was. Heidi and I had no idea what the next 30 years would hold, but by faith we said, I do. And with that decision, we began our faith journey. We chose to believe in a commitment that we could not fully define, and we chose to face a future together that we could not fully understand. Here's the bottom line. I'm encouraging you to consider believing in something you can't touch, feel, or understand by realizing that you already believe in things you can't touch, feel, or understand. We think this way all the time. We make plans for tomorrow, and we don't know that tomorrow will even come. 
We dream about falling in love with someone we have yet to meet. None of these actions make sense without the assumption of faith. Since you already have a faith system, I'm not asking you to do something you don't already do. I'm suggesting you evaluate the trustworthiness of whatever faith you choose and the potential outcome of that faith. I'm asking you just to consider that the Bible was given to us directly from God and that in the Bible we can discover God's heart and mind. What if the Bible is completely true? What if Jesus' claims that he is God, which are found in the Bible, are accurate? What would that mean for your life? What would that mean for your eternal soul? What would happen if you placed your faith in the person of Jesus and the validity of the Bible? A Christ follower is simply a person who has chosen to believe by faith that Jesus and his message is true. That's it. I'm not asking you to become a Christ follower. I'm just asking you to give the idea of placing your faith in Jesus a fair shot. If you are on the fence or confused or skeptical or just uninterested right now, that's okay. These are decisions only you can make. The last part of the biblical story that we talked about was the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, God was hurt, and humanity was cursed. Let's take a leap in the timeline of the Bible to Genesis chapter 11. That's not to say that those chapters in between aren't important. In fact, a couple of the Bible's most famous stories have happened by the time we make it to chapter 11, including Noah's Ark, the Tower of Babel, and Cain killing his brother Abel. Don't worry if these stories aren't familiar to you. I encourage you to go back and read them, but all you need to know for the sake of our discussion here is that several generations have passed since Adam and Eve, and humanity is really suffering from the consequences of the fall. Usually when people tell me they know nothing, they at least know something about Adam and Eve. Some people see the God of the Bible as being defined by his anger toward Adam and Eve in the garden. From this point of view, everything that has happened since that point in history has been God punishing humanity and distancing himself from our sinfulness. But this is not what happened. What a lot of people may not know is that God didn't just throw his hands up in the air and totally give up on humanity after the fall. He was very much on the scene, but he was interacting with a few individuals here and a family or two there. God was around always has been and always will be. Even during these times of suffering in the Bible, he was blessing, rescuing, and helping. But yes, he was also holding humanity accountable for their rebellion in the garden and the open floodgate of sin that ensued. Sin was rampant. I mean, it was everywhere. Let's pick up in chapter 11 of Genesis with one of the key players in the unfolding of God's story of redemption. Abraham. Enter Abraham. Well, first he's called Abram, and then God changes his name to Abraham. Let's make it easy for us and me and just call him Abraham. Many biblical commentaries call Abraham the father of our faith, and that's how we think of him as a patriarch. God's relationship with Abraham is important because it illustrates how he wants to interact with us. Think of their relationship as the foundation for God's relationship with all of humanity. We first meet Abraham in Genesis 11. He was the oldest son of a relatively wealthy family, which was significant in the ancient world because the oldest son inherited all the family's wealth once the father died. If you were the second son or the third son, you were pretty much left out of the inheritance or received much less. If you were the daughter, you were really left out. The eldest brother would take over, and all the other siblings were more or less subject to his good graces. Abraham was in that privileged position of being the oldest son and was set to inherit all the wealth and security his father had established. 
Abraham grew up and married a woman named Sarah later named Sarah. According to scripture, Sarah was childless because she was not able to conceive Genesis 1130. Her inability to become pregnant is a hugely important piece of their story and God's work in their lives. Blessings. I want to pause on Abraham's story to talk about blessings. God does a lot of blessing in the Bible, particularly with Abraham, so I want to be clear about what those blessings mean. Generally, God blesses an individual, a nation, and the church. The nation God blesses is Israel, the Jewish people. They are his chosen people. In the Old Testament, God makes a promise to the nation of Israel, and it only applies to them. God also blesses or makes promises to the church, but we read about his relationship with the church mostly in the New Testament. When I'm explaining this, people often say something like, well, that's not fair. Why did God choose certain people and not others? And that's a great question. The Bible teaches that God blesses different people in different ways so that the rest of the world can learn about a relationship with God through watching them. What is fascinating and sometimes sad is that many of the chosen people did not end up choosing God back. So the big picture is that God chose a few people to bless as examples in order to offer a relationship to all of us. Sometimes when God blesses a person, we learn a lesson or a principle from it, but their blessing does not apply to you or me. When God blesses Israel again, we can learn lessons from it. We can see what God is like, but God's blessing of Israel does not mean that he blesses the United States in the same way. People will sometimes read of these blessings and think, oh, God is going to make a great nation out of me too. No, he is not. Not at all. That blessing was not for you. Sometimes God gave people instructions to obtain wealth and power. I hate to break it to you, but he was talking to the nation of Israel, not to you. It's important to understand how his blessings work to avoid misinterpreting his words, especially when talking about things in the Old Testament. Restoration. Back to Abraham. Although God chose to bless him, Abraham did not follow God perfectly. He was a mess in a lot of ways. He was insecure and fearful. He could be deceptive. He did not always trust God. He was impatient and very, very human. Those are all parts of Abraham's story, but God saw that Abraham was a man of faith, and his faith was credited to him as righteousness, Genesis 15:6. God was pleased with the faith of Abraham. Let's look at God's interaction with Abraham and Abraham's interaction with God. In Genesis 12, 1, the Bible says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. In other words, God said, I want to restore this relationship with you, and I want you to interact with me, but you must leave everything you have known and come and follow me. Abraham was asked to leave his country, culture, family, friends, wealth, and his position to follow God. This idea is huge when it comes to understanding God and what it means to follow Christ and understanding the construct of Christianity as whole, really. When we decide to become a Christian and follow God, we follow him with abandon. We go all in 100%. We leave whatever may be behind us and look forward to what lies ahead. We walk away from our old lives, identities, and even our opinions to rely on Christ entirely. We don't simply add church to our routines and call ourselves converted. Christianity is not an add-on idea. It is an instead of idea. We choose to live as Christians instead of living any other way. We choose to follow God and Christ instead of our own way. It was the relationship between God and Abraham that set this precedent. You might be wondering, why did God want Abraham to leave everything behind? 
What was God trying to accomplish? Is he just controlling and authoritarian? He wants to bring about restoration. He is making a way for us to return to the relationship we had with him in the garden before the fall. In verses 2 and 3 of chapter 12, God tells Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Can you imagine what Abraham must have been thinking? Good luck with that, God. Sarah and I can't produce a child, let alone an entire nation. God makes these promises to Abraham, and through them we can see the heart of God. He wants to bless us, use us, and work both in and through us. Mind you, that doesn't mean he's going to give us anything and everything we want either. You may want a Lamborghini, but that doesn't mean God will bless you with one. He wants to give us the meaningful desires of our hearts, not the whims of our flesh. Again, following Chris is not an add-on, it is an instead of. God told Abraham to go because he wanted to give him these wonderful, wonderful things that they were intended to have in the garden, but were taken away because of sin. Answer, yes. So what does Abraham do? Abraham sets the example for how you and I are to respond to God. Abraham went as the Lord told him. If you are considering becoming a Christ follower and you want to know what it is like, this is it. For a Christ follower in our relationship with God, the answer is always a predetermined yes before the question is asked. Abraham didn't know where he was going, how he was going to get there, or how long he'd be gone. When God told Abraham he'd build a great nation from him, which I am sure was confusing to him, Abraham didn't question God or stress his and Sarah's struggle with infertility. The answer for a Christian is always yes. By the way, this is why Christians do weird things. I'll own it. We Christians do some unusual stuff. We leave our comfortable lifestyles behind and move to the middle of Africa to live in poverty. All of our kids know each other and are connected because we value the encouragement that comes in life from gathering together for church. We give our money away freely and often. If we feel God has laid something on our hearts, we follow him, and we say, yes, no questions asked. Abraham walked away from everything he knew and went all in for God. He trusted that God was going to bless him, use him, and restore their relationship with him, so he would just find out what that land was like when he got there. I know how insane that sounds, but it's the cornerstone to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. God knows we can't be perfect since we have a sinful nature, but if we follow him and have faith in him, our perfect relationship with our Creator will be restored. Faith is a covenant. God establishes a set of promises and agreements that the Bible calls covenants. We read about covenants many times throughout the Bible, but the first mention of them appears in Genesis. In Genesis 17:9, God told Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for generations to come. In today's language, God told Abraham, I made a promise to you, you keep your promise to me. It means have faith in God, that's what he wants from us. He wants us to trust in what he is doing and how he is doing it. Now, let's revisit the definition of faith for a minute. Thankfully, the Bible defines it for us in Hebrews 11:1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith means having confidence in what we hope for. What do I hope for? I hope that God is who he says he is. I hope that God loves me the way he says he does. I hope that God has my best interests in mind as the Bible teaches. I hope that God would never bring me harm. 
I hope that the promises of God are true. I place my confidence in that. I am banking on that. These are fantasies, empty desires, and unmerited wishful thinking. These hopes are placed in the words and promises of God, and we are choosing to trust Him. Faith has an actual landing point. It's not just something made up by weak-minded people to help them sleep better at night. By faith, Abraham had confidence that the Lord wanted to bless him, and he was sure that when he showed up to that land, his life was going to include what he really longed for and desired. In the Bible, faith is not a belief system. People use the word faith a lot. They say things like, tell people about your faith, and what is your faith Catholic, Protestant, Muslim? They're asking about belief systems, but that is not the biblical definition of faith. In the Bible, faith is not synonymous with religion. Faith is informed. Faith is intelligent, but faith is still a decision. I am deciding to put my confidence in God. I am deciding to have assurance of what I cannot see. Faith is choosing to believe in what I know I cannot and never will fully understand, not because I'm lazy or dumb or a simpleton, but because I have made a decision to place my faith in who God is. What makes you pound the table? I will give you an example of faith in earthly relationships. Heidi and I once placed our faith in a person. The church I belong to and at which I am now the senior pastor has eight campuses, six in Ohio, one in Georgia, and one in South Carolina. I pastor at the Bath Campus in Ohio, which has been around since 2000. Before Heidi and I came to the Bath Campus, we were youth pastors at the Norton Campus, which is the mother of all the campuses. My friend, mentor, and senior pastor at the time was Pastor Bob Combs. Pastor Bob is like a second father to me. I love and respect him very, very deeply. To put it into perspective, the average tenure of a youth pastor is 18 months. We were there for seven years. That's how close our relationship is. Heidi and I eventually had our own kids, and we both felt it was time to wrap up the youth pastor ministry phase of our lives. I went to Pastor Bob and said, Hey, Bob, do you think it's time for me to hang the spikes up? He replied, I have an opportunity up in Bath to maybe start a campus. Are you interested? Absolutely not. I don't like that. I don't like the building. I don't like working with older people. I don't want to do that. Heidi and I were conflicted about it and unsure of what to do next, so we sought wisdom from our mentors, but every time we talked to a mentor, they offered me a job. While flattering, this was not helpful because we did not know what to do or where to go, and suddenly we had too many options. Back then, I was like the young, sharp, golden child that everybody wanted to have on their team. Now, I never get job offers. People say, Bogue? Yeah, he's not holding up too well. But back then, everybody kept offering me jobs. We decided to visit another mentor in Indiana to see if he might have some helpful advice, but he offered us a job too. Heidi and I were on our way out of town when we decided to visit our alma mater, Grace College, to see the campus. As we were driving around, we bumped into another mentor, Roger, in the parking lot. I'll never forget our conversation with him for as long as I live. He approached and asked, Hey, how are you doing? We exchanged small talk and started to talk about our futures. I told Roger our dilemma. He said, Listen guys, you have to figure out what you are so passionate about, so frustrated with, and so dissatisfied with that it makes you want to pound the table. What are you so passionate about that you daydream about it? What keeps you up at night? And then he said, you have to figure out what relationships you're in. Who are you tied to? 
Your answers to those questions will help you know where to go in your walk with God. This was a 20-minute, life-changing conversation. We said goodbye to Roger and left the campus. We were getting on the highway when Heidi asked, what do you think? I said, I know exactly what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to start the Bath Campus. I told you that a month ago, Heidi said, what gave you the confidence? I replied, I cannot envision a scenario in which I look Pastor Bob in the eyes and tell him I am leaving him. I can't do it. I can't imagine telling him I am not going to be by his side. We came back and I shared the news with Pastor Bob. We placed our faith in him because we knew he was a man of God worth trusting. We were confident in what we hoped for. We hoped and we believed that Pastor Bob loved us. We believed he would never leave us or forsake us if we stepped up. We placed our faith in him and we had assurance of what was unseen. We knew nothing about starting a church, but we knew with confidence that Pastor Bob would be part of that future with us. We left what we knew and walked on in faith. Now, if you're married or hoping to get married one day, you have made or will make the same decision of faith. When Heidi and I married, she placed her faith in me. We didn't know what the future held. All we knew was that she and I will be in that future together. End of story. That's what we hope for, and that's what we have confidence in. We locked into it, and I just have to hope that Heidi doesn't regret it too much. You make those same faith decisions when you choose a career or a school. Hitch your wagon to Christ. Abraham set the example for all of us spiritually. We are to place our faith in God and in Jesus Christ. I hitch my wagon to Christ. I have no idea what the future holds, but I have assurance that Christ will be in that future with me. I do not know what the circumstances will be. I do not know how much money I am going to make or how my health will fare because God does not promise any of those things, but he does promise to be with you. For Abraham and Sarah, God intervened with a miracle. Sarah became pregnant at 80 years old. She could not foresee or understand how, but she believed God's promise. She put her faith in him and gave birth to a son named Isaac. Hebrews 11.12 writes of Abraham, So from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Can you imagine that? Imagine having a newborn at 80 years old. Abraham couldn't have been much help because he was already 100, so that was great, right? The point is that the entire Jewish nation comes from Abraham. That's why he is often called the father of Israel. The lineage of the Jewish nation starts with Abraham, his son, and his grandson, respectively. The scripture says Abraham and Sarah did not even see all of the blessings play out in their lifetime, Genesis 15, 18, 21. Abraham had one child with Sarah. He didn't get to see the birth of all of his descendants. He placed his confidence in God and was assured that all those descendants would be born. They did not see everything happen in their little slice of time, but they had faith that God would do all that he said he would do. All in. As a Christian, I can tell you I have literally staked my eternal soul on the hope that God is who he says he is. If I'm supposed to follow another religion, then I am dead meat because I have chosen Christ. My soul is literally staked on that decision, and that's what a follower of Christ does. I am asking you to consider placing your faith somewhere intentionally, not in a belief system, not in yourself, not in your culture or your people or your land, but in the person of Jesus Christ. No matter where he leads you in the future, he will be in it with you. 
Here's where the Bible comes in. How do you know how to have a relationship with a God you can't see? How do you communicate with him and hear back from him? After all, God isn't showing up to us like he did with Moses speaking audibly and telling us what's going on. When God talks to you 99% of the time, it's through the Bible, which people like Moses recorded. So what do we do? We read the book and God will communicate to us through it, comforting us, teaching us things like forgiveness, giving us timely wisdom for life, and teaching us who he is. How to live life with God daily is a huge conversation for another time, but hopefully this helps you understand the basic concept of what it means to live by faith. All right, the ball is in your court. Do with it what you will. I told you at the beginning our little deal is that I am not asking you to believe all of this. I am just asking you to have an open mind. Truthfully, I'm excited you're even reading this. headspace. Connect with God. We learned that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Psalm 46.10 states, he says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Imagine for a minute, or maybe even exercise faith, that God is who he says he is. Try to avoid being distracted in your mind and just sit in stillness and talk to God about who he says he is and how you would like to experience him. Here are some verses to get you started. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself. Isaiah 44, 24. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8:12. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. John 11:25. Connect with others. Faith is not a solo sport. God instructs his followers to treat others the way God treats them. This takes faith because it means that we don't treat people based on human logic, but based on their value as God's child. Faith in God means trusting him in a way that we actually do what he says because we believe his ways are better than ours. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Matthew 5, 43 through 45. We can practice faith that God has created and loves all people, wanting them to know him by displaying the unconditional love we have received from God to the people around us. Because God's way of treating others is different than our sinful inclination, what should we do out of love to the people around us? What about those who are difficult to love? What does this mean for you? We discussed that we all already have faith in something. It could be our own abilities, karma, or goodwill. We should evaluate the trustworthiness of whatever we place our faith in. Here are some questions to help get you started. Is the object of my faith reliable and accurate? What evidence or facts back up my faith? As you consider where you place your faith, think about what the Bible says about God. God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Numbers twenty-three nineteen. 
We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. 1 John 5.20 For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Colossians 2.9 and 10 God is all of this and so much more. If this is all true, why might this God be the best and only person worth putting our faith in? How could having a trustworthy God impact your everyday life and your hopes for the future?